Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now, on to the show. I'm Lisa Davis. And I'm Sunny Days. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Sunny, I am so excited about today's show. I know, right? I'm ready to dig in. All right, I'll, I will bring her in. This is a wonderful Celeste Headley. Her book is Speaking of Race, Why Everyone Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. She is also the author of We Need to Talk. Celeste is an award-winning journalist, a profess- professional speaker, and the author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. She was a co-host of the weekly series Red report on PBS and co-host of the Scene on Radio podcast season three, Men. Celeste serves as an advisory board member for ProCon and the Listen First Project. In her 20-year career in public radio, Celeste has been the executive producer of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Radio and has anchored many programs, including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition. Oh my gosh, I am like so impressed. Right, like how do you have this much time? (laughs) (laughs) She has also co-hosted the National Morning News Show, The Takeaway for PRI and WNYC, anchored World Channel's presidential coverage in 2012, and received the 2019 Media Changemaker Award. Hello, Celeste. Hello. excited to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Welcome. Welcome. So again, we're going to jump right in. And one of our first questions is, and we ask every guest this, what were you marinated in? And basically, you know, in your childhood, what lived experiences helped you become who you are today? So I come from a mixed race family. Um, my grandparents uh, on my mom's side, and that's who I grew up with, were um, was a, a Jewish woman, uh, a child of immigrants and a child of uh, Holocaust survivors. Um, and my grandfather, who is a, a black man born in, in, in Little Rock, Arkansas, actually is born in Mississippi, his dad was killed by the KKK (laughs) and then they fled to Little Rock, Arkansas. And when they were married, it was illegal. So they got married in Tijuana. Um, And this is all to say that that's what I grew up surrounded by. Um, They were musicians. She was a journalist. My mother was a writer. So I was surrounded not only by highly educated people, my great grandmother um, born on a slave plantation in Georgia, got it, her, degree, her teaching degree from Atlanta University just after the Civil War. Um, so I grew, I grew up in a highly educated family, a highly accomplished family, um, and, uh, and a family that had been thinking about um, civil rights and racial identity. And not only that, but our, our responsibility to each other. What is our 
obligation to to one another. Um, that's how I grew up. Oh, wow. You know, I, I had mentioned before we started taping that I have so many quotes. Quote, if we are finally to put this woeful history behind us, we must talk about it with honesty and authenticity, open our mental doors and air out the musty cupboards of our prejudice, lift the rocks and send the creepy crawlies of racism scrambling. You are an incredible writer. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I think that bias is so universal. And, and ironically enough, um, prejudice, this thing that seeks to separate us, is actually common ground. Um, we all have it in one way or another. Um, maybe it's not racial prejudice. Maybe we have uh, an automatic preference for really attractive people. Maybe we think that wealthy people are smarter than average. Whatever it may be, our biases actually join us together. And we try to hide that. And and one of the ways we try to hide that is by um, pointing out how much worse everybody else is. <laughs> um, right. So like that, I mean, expanding on that, like lifting up those rocks, it's kind of like lifting up your, your couch every once in a while and you realize how much is accumulated under there. <laughs> Don't go into my couch cushions. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's universal, right? Like right. you're not going to go to somebody's house and lift up their couch and it's going to be pristine. Like... <laughs> not going to happen. So to a certain extent, as much as we don't want people looking at that, that's a, that's a universal human experience. And that's sort of where this book was coming from. That's what I was talking about there. So when we talk about bias and racism, uh, as I think about it, they're very different. Uh, but you know, when you're, when you expounded on Lisa's question, you use the word bias. So do you not feel like it's, I don't want to say, do you not? What are your thoughts on bias and racism? The differences. So there are so many different definitions of <laughs> bias and racism and discrimination. Um, it, I think that um, for me, I, this is something I had to settle when I very started, first started the book. Like when I said racist or, or racism, what did I mean? Um, and so acknowledging that there are many different definitions for that. Some people say that racism is prejudice plus power. Um, that's incredibly useful when what you're talking about is systemic racism and the, yeah. the, the fight to break down the very systems that people keep um, uh, underrepresented people in a place often of, of, of a lack of opportunity, et cetera. Um, but for my purposes, my book is about conversation. And so when I'm talking about bias and racism, I'm talking about making assumptions about other people based on their perceived race. Okay. Because in a conversation, that's what, that's what you're dealing with. Um, sometimes that can be positive as in a model minority. Um, most of the time it's negative, but that when I say racism for the purposes of my book, that's what I mean. Okay. And I, I appreciate you breaking that down because I'm sure some about someone in our listening audience, you know, would hear that conversation or hear your response and wonder. So again, yeah. thank you for expounding upon that. You know, that was really, really helpful. You know, you talk also about the conversations that you've heard because you're very, you look white. And so you will hear the racist things people say. You've heard anti-Semitic things as well. You mentioned what did what do you first say when you when someone says that to you, thinking you're just you know a white Christian person or something? Yeah, most people know when they meet me that uh, that I'm something. Um, I think I most often get mistaken for Dominican, and 
you know, people will frantic people in a New York subway will come up and speak to me in very rapid Spanish. Um, uh, but yeah, it is true that they don't think I'm black and Jewish. Um, and so they'll say things all the time that they would not say. There's a few different responses. First of all, you asked me what my response is. Sure. I, I used to, when I was much younger, I used to say nothing. Um, and eventually over time I got secure enough in my own identity, but also, you know, talking about our obligations to one another, I became so incredibly aware of my own ancestor standing over my shoulder <laughs> that it was not possible for me to not say anything anymore. And so I always say something now. Um, I will always say, wow, that, that, it's racist. That's wow. You're really playing on a damaging stereotype there. Um, at which their response is, and I'm sure you can guess it is 99 times out of a hundred. I'm not racist. <laughs> and then we have that conversation. I usually say, you know, you are, but you know, let's talk about where that came from. <laughs> Cause I, it would be great if you didn't say anything like that again. Um, you know, every time you say something like that, you're hurting somebody. So, you know, let's work on figuring out how to make sure that doesn't come out of your mouth ever again, whatever your intention was. Um, but, you know, sometimes people get mad at me, um, white people especially, if they say something racist and I say, whoa, I'm black, <laughs> they will get angry as though I have, uh, I, you know, I'm an undercover agent or something. Like I tricked them into saying something racist <laughs> And now, you know, I, I it's like I, 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 it's like a gotcha question. That's sort of the sense of it. It's like you fooled me into saying this awful thing. So you know, people's responses are are various, but they're almost always defensive, and they're always some ver version of "I didn't mean it like that." I'm not racist. Oh, of course, of course. That's <laughs> that's typical. You know, when people do and or say say things out of pocket. Uh, it's just a matter of time before the, the white tears and the apology shows up. Oh my God, I didn't mean it because now you understand the consequences of your action. You've ruined your career and you're, you're just, you know, <laughs> it's time's infinity, the things that you have done to, to ruin your life. Um, one of my questions to you is timing. Um, I read that you believe timing of is, is of importance when discussing race. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, because, well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. And then we can, <laughs> I can tell you what I think. <laughs> yeah. So it depends on, on what it is that you're doing. Um, if, if someone says a microaggression, <coughs> so if someone uh, makes a microaggression, um, I, I want everybody, I don't care what color you are. I want everyone to intervene interrupt the microaggression, hopefully interrupt it so quickly they don't get to the end of their sentence. And I put instructions on there to how to very quickly. I mean, I'm, when I say quickly, I mean between 30 to 60 seconds, you can intervene in that microaggression and then move on. Mm -hmm. um, that needs to happen Im immediately. But when you're thinking about timing uh, of, a, of a conversation, you have to think first about what your goal is. Right. So if you're going to have a more in-depth conversation some, with someone about race, what are you hoping to achieve? Are you, are you just filled with frustration and you just need to get it all out? Well, then 
timing doesn't matter. That's that, that's your moment. And that's a perfectly valid <laughs> response. But if your goal is to try to nudge them towards some kind of better understanding, if your goal is to even have a prayer of, of changing their behavior going forward, then you have to think about um, timing that will make both you and that other person psychologically safe and comfortable enough to be vulnerable. Um, are you in a state of mind where you can have that conversation without exploding? Is this the right time for you? Is it too raw right now? Do you need a little bit of breathing space? Um, what about that other person? Are there people around? Um, because the fact of the matter is, is that any, any scientific study of conversation will tell you that the stakes um, involved in a conversation where there's an audience are incredibly different than the stakes of a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You are so much more likely to get someone able, able to be vulnerable, willing to open their minds if it's one-on-one -on -one, rather than where there are people around and their social status is in play. So when I, when I'm talking about, and there's even other things that are specific to timing. For example, we know neurologically speaking that almost everybody, even if you're not a morning person is cognitively more capable of handling difficult cognitive tasks in the morning. <laughs> That's just true. And so you can think about timing and sort of in, in terms terms of remembering that this kind of conversation is going to be taxing. It's going to be taxing to you emotionally, but also just neurologically. And so find a time of day at which you are most able to focus, at which you have the most energy and the patience and resilience available to you in order to get all the way through That is it. so incredible. Yeah. Thank you for that. I know, right? I love that. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, it's <laughs> unlike my approach where, and I've mentioned this horrible person before, he's no longer in my life, but he's racist and sexist and horrible, but he has a daughter who was friends with my daughter and I would like to have her around so I can be a good influence. And he would come over and I'd be like, you're racist, get the fuck out of my house. I will drive your daughter home. And that's what, that was our conversation. But he, I felt like there's certain people, like you say in the book, don't try to have a conversation with a neo-Nazi, right? Like, He's so far gone. You know, he's the type that thinks that the um, the insurrection was really Antifa. You know what I mean? Like, he's so far gone. There's really no point. Um, so it's easier to throw him out of my house. But with most people, I would hope, right, that you can have these conversations. Yeah. If I could jump in here for just a second, you know, when you're making these calculations, and I want people to take a breath and actually put this thought into it, okay. right? Because so often react very quickly in the moment. Um, and, and that is almost never great. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not proud. Yeah. But I also want people to think about, you know, there's a, there's a structure that I, I include in the book that actually began as a, a marketing structure, but Dolly Chug of Stanford University uh, first used it to apply to um, conversation or uh, thoughts about bias. And it's the 60, 20, 20 framework. So in any organization, when you introduce some kind of change or a new idea, um, roughly you can split the group into the 60%, the 20 and the 20. So at the this end, you've got the 20% or so who are on board. They get it. They understand. Uh, they are ready for the whatever work is required and they're going to help out. On the other end, you've got the 20% who just are not going to change. Not only are they opposed to whatever it is, not only do they disagree with the the ideas and the assumptions, but sometimes they will actively work against whatever you're trying to do. They're often known as the stuck 20. And then in the middle, you have 
the 60% that could go either way. They're sometimes called the movable middle. Now I bring this up because sometimes we we are confronted with a conversation with somebody in the stuck 20 and we think to ourselves, there's no point to this. Why would I talk to this person? Except we've forgotten that our audience is never that stuck 20. It's the 60 in the middle. That's who you want to hear. You want to always hear that movable middle. They, they need to hear you confronting prejudice and bias at every step, never allowing it to be socially acceptable because you allow it to, to pass unspoken, never allowing it to be unopposed. That's your audience. And the things that we don't speak about inevitably become associated with shame. Inevitably. And, and that's why I just want people to always speak up, even if it's only 30 seconds at a time. Even if the most that you can do is say, wow, that, you know, that sound, they came off really racist to me. It sounds to me like you're feeding a really destructive stereotype and that bothers me. And, you know, I'm sure you're a fair-minded person. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and assume you didn't mean, intend it that way, but I wanted to let you know that that's not okay. Even if that's all you do, and that took maybe 15 or 20 seconds, that's important because you can't ever forget that movable middle and the the true audience of these conversations. So do you feel like that is better received from you as a person who looks white versus me, a person who clearly looks like a woman of color? Um, I can imagine me in a situation pumping the brakes full stop saying, listen, what that's going to look like versus Celeste in that moment, based on your exterior, how that would be received. And so can you speak to how that privilege, uh, based on the way you look, how that plays out in your life? Because I'm sure it has played out in your favor. And maybe, you know, in some respect, not. But if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, this is something I tried to be absolutely honest about in the book and confront as honestly as possible. Because the fact of the matter is, is that my skin color is the result of racism in my own family. Right? All the way along, they kept choosing lighter skinned people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they did that out of this racist assumption that um, the lighter your skin is, the more beautiful you are. Also, the more likely you are to get ahead. That the sad part about me recognizing that is that they, they were right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were right. I'm not saying it's right, the behavior. And, exactly. But the, the, the mindset and the way we see um, society. They were correct. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't have to worry about being pulled over by a cop in, in most cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's another, there's so many layers to this. It gets so complicated mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the thing of it is, is that people, especially in America, they have this need to know who you, they need to know what category to put you in. Oh, of course. And so you're confronted with this for me almost immediately. And I am over and over and over again, given this choice of whether I ident- to identify myself as a, a black person or not. And I, I'm always, I'm never going to try to pass. That's not going to happen. Okay. Um, and as soon as people, as soon as you say, I'm, I'm 
I say I'm black and Jewish, but as soon as you say black in America, that's it. That's the category you're in for the rest of your life. Like point blank period. That's it. You know, I worked at NPR for a very, very long time. And for a long period of time, as soon as they found out that that's who I was, and I started hosting the show that was targeted to black audiences to call Tell Me More, that became the only show I hosted. Um, So there's that. But you are also correct that because there's this visceral sense that people get based on skin color, that it is true that even though they know my background, um, white people especially can feel um, less afraid of me. I mean, they still call me angry and loud and, um, <laughs> uh, you know, trouble, but um, they they don't have that visceral sense of fear that they might get w- if somebody with darker skin were getting in their face. Because um, it's that, because you're familiar. It's like, you look like me. And so I'm not going to, well, I'm saying. Right. I'm not too them. far off. Right. 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 Yeah. Like I'm not so far off that, you know, that it becomes I'm othered. Yeah. Um, and that's absolutely the case. Does it make it easier for me to speak up? You know, what I try to, what I'm trying to teach in this book is a way that you can speak up regardless of how dark your skin is. Like you can be like almost blue, dark, beautiful black skin, and you should be able to use these techniques in a way that will at least get you through that 30 to 60 seconds. You may not ever get to that level with a white person, especially that allows you to have the really deep conversation. That's possible, but you will at least be able to get through that micro intervention as the great scholar, Daryl Wing Sue calls them. Um, he, he talks about microaggressions, which is by far the most common type of racism all of us are going to encounter on a daily basis. Very few of us um, have to encounter hostile racism on a, on a daily basis. Um, so those microaggressions require what he calls a micro intervention. And, and that's the kind of technique that we can all yearn, learn and you can get through uh, without triggering those defensiveness. You know, a big part of the book was focused on understanding defensiveness, understanding where what's triggering that and then how to diffuse it, how to either avoid it or diffuse it so that it gets into some, some neurological and psychological waters, but only for the purposes of giving you more tools and resources. Yeah, that was, that's so interesting. Yeah, I remember once I was on a date with the guys a long time ago and he was talking about how some guy Jewed him. And I'm like, I'm Jewish. It's so offensive. He goes, oh my God, because people seem to think I'm German or I don't know what they think, but they don't, they never say Jewish. They always, I don't know why they always seem surprised. And, but I didn't, I was young. I was like maybe 20 or something. And that's all I said though. I didn't like really go into it. I want to give you credit because earlier you said you were 18. You wrote in the book when you started. That's really remarkable. I was 20 and all I said was, dude, I'm Jewish. Not cool. Like I didn't get into the whole thing. And (laughs) And I mean, I want to, I want to acknowledge that here, we, when we're recording this, just last night, we had a dangerous hostage situation yes, with a violent person in, in a Dallas synagogue. And I, you know, it's just a constant reminder, not only for, for Jews, but for black people and Asian Americans who have been targeted and, and Muslims, just a constant reminder that none of this is philosophical. This is all real danger. It's not metaphoric. 
you know, interesting enough, I had a friend of mine, we were talking about a, a professor um, who teaches constitutional law and she has spouted some just absolutely vile, racist, anti-immigrant beliefs. And, um, I was like, well, they should let her go. <laughs> right. She shouldn't be teaching young minds. And my friend who's white was like, well, but you know, there's free speech and you know, why not just let her, you know, she can say her beliefs and all the other people will be on the other side of her. And I'm like, do you, do you not get that? This is, this is not just a, you know, a, a debate in your head. This is not just something you pass back and forth over dinner. Like these are people's lives. People die because of these hateful beliefs and to, to it all allow them to have a platform like a major university where we are in some way saying, yeah, these are normal. That's you normalizing that hateful belief um, by saying, not only are we going to allow this to be taught to further generations, but we're going to pay this person a lot of money to do it. Like that's not okay. Yes. You should not in, you know, in, impugn her free, her right to free speech, but let her say all she wants without the cover and platform of your major university. Um, and that's sort of what comes to me all these times that we're talking about it. And again, it's difficult for me because my, what I'm writing about is conversations between individuals. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the fight against systemic racism, which is a, a similar and parallel, but different fight. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about one-on-one, one human being to another human being and how you get through that conversation because avoiding these conversations is what we have been doing for 160 years and it's why we are where we are. I was listening to an interview with you and this was, it's so sad, but it's so true. You were saying how they're like, well, you know, this next generation, there won't be any more hate and racism and anti-Semitism because the younger people but it's like, that's not how it works. No, nope. Because it just so expand on that. Because I thought that was. Yeah, really you profound. can't age out of racism. You know, it, by age two or three, children already um, have adopted, you know, some of the prejudicial beliefs of their parents and caretakers. It's just, you know, the, the, the difficulty here is that the vast majority of the prejudice that people have is unconscious. It's a result of unconscious bias and implicit bias meaning they have no idea. They think they're making rational decisions and they have no idea that bubbling underneath in their subconscious is the product of all the media they have taken in, all of the things they've heard from teachers, all of the things they've overheard while in a grocery store, all of this racism and sexism and anti-Semitism that surrounds us all the time. It gets in there. Like this is why, you know, museums hide their paintings from the sunlight because it will touch the oil and it will affect it. Beverly Daniels Tatum, um, she calls it the smog that's in the air that we breathe, that we're breathing it in every single day and there's no escaping it. And, and so that's makes it very difficult to root out because you say to someone you're racist and they honestly answer you, no, I'm not. I don't have a racist bone in my body. Sometimes we think they're being cynical, but I don't think so. I think they truly believe they're not. David Duke says he's not racist, right? And probably believes it. And so this makes it difficult, right? Because you know, I don't want to get too deeply into um, social psychology here. Oh, no, please do. I love it. <laughs> but um, 
there's this thing called terror management theory, right? It's this idea that if you look back over the course of history of mankind, humankind, pardon me, it's okay. sexism leaking in, mm-hmm. um, we have underneath it all an existential fear of death. That's stronger or weaker, but it's always somewhere in there. This idea that our lives are finite. Um, And that creates this drive to attach ourselves to something that is bigger than ourselves, that could outlast ourselves. In some cases, and this leads to attachment theory, right? Like how attached we become to other people, but also to other causes and other things. In some cases, this can be extremely uh, beneficial. It can lead people to join the, the, the fight against climate change, the fight against racism. It can drive people to, to do incredibly generous and, and, and beneficial things. It can drive some people to like become very attached to their home because that's what they're leaving to their families or this will outlast them. But it also is sometimes what drives people to really maladaptive things. And, and sometimes it makes them grab onto that Confederate flag, which is larger than themselves, right? Power. And yes, it has them grab onto QAnon. And they grasp that because this is bigger than themselves. This is larger than life. And it gives their their lives purpose and meaning and helps to allay. All of attachment theory is about allaying your fears, making you feel some sense of security that you're grounded. So the way you, uh, you fix terror is not with more terror. If you attack someone who is taking an action out of their own fear, it just makes them more fearful and they grasp on harder. The way to make them let go is to say, it's okay. Look, even if you let go of that, there's a safe place over here where there is also something that's more important than this your life. There's also something that gives you purpose and meaning. It, you have to give them, they, they as long as they are still in, in fear, they will not let go. Yeah, let me take a big sigh on that because I, I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts running through my mind. Um, one, and not to oversimplify this, um, as a woman of color who has had certainly had challenges in this life, body of mine, um, racist encounters with racist people, you know, called out of my name, um, you know, issues at work based on, you know, female, but probably mostly person of color. I believe people know the difference from right and wrong. That's just, that's basic. If you're hating me, if you are mistreating me as a human, Okay, not even as a woman, not even as a woman of color. If you're mistreating me as a human, you know that's wrong. And I feel like so often we give passes to white men uh, who either have mental illness or some issues from their childhood where they want to cling to, you know, it's like a gang mentality. I didn't receive the love that I needed at home. So let me go out here and cling to whatever it is. And I, I just, I know we have to have these conversations. I know we have to be more open and accepting and, and giving, but I tell you, 
it is a struggle sometimes to give a pass. I feel like a lot of times we give a pass to these people. Oh, well, little Danny didn't do X, Y, and Z because of, you know, A, B, and C. And I'm like, when are we going to collectively understand that right is right and wrong is wrong and hold people accountable? Um, yeah, I don't suggest we give anyone a pass. I'm not I'm not talking about giving anyone a pass. The the question for me isn't um what's morally right necessary. I mean, yeah, it is what's morally right and what's ethical. It's less about principles than it is about what works. Like what is my goal here? It is my goal and and let me say this. Um People of color, especially, I mean, everybody, but people of color, especially, they don't, they're not always able to do this. <laughs> and to be quite frank with you, um, my, the bigger audience for my book is, is white people. Because um, when people of color speak up, especially women of color, speak up about injustice and bias in the workplace, for example, we have lots of data on this. Um, not only are they not believed, they are so much more likely to pay a price in their performance evaluations and not price. getting a promotion. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are not taken credibly. They are seen even by other women and by other people of color as troublemakers and loud and complainers. Um, and that they are playing the race card. Um, I still want them to speak up. But on the other hand, you have white people and especially white men, but equally white women who, when they speak up about racial injustice, um, are rewarded for it. They are more, much more likely to be persuasive. They are much more likely to be believed and seen as credible mm -hmm. and seen as fair minded. So, I want to make sure that we give psychological space for white men, especially to speak up. I'm not talking about allowing them to speak for us. I'm talking about when a white man interrupts a microaggression, um, uh, he needs to say, Hey, don't say that. Um, what would you say that if there were black people here? No, he needs to say that bothers me. I don't like to hear that kind of language that's upsetting to me. Or the sexist shouldn't say, you know, don't swear there's women present. <laughs> you need to say, that bothers me and offends me. But we as people of color and women of color need to let them speak up and um, encourage it. Because they're the ones that are actually have the power to move the needle. Mm -hmm. I there don't are, disagree with you on that. Yeah, I agree. So there are many times when, and, and not every person of color has it in them anymore to have these kind of conversations. And you know what? That's okay. Yeah, it's very exhausting. It is. It's very exhausting. And not only that, but like, like, I get it. You know, it's funny because when Donald Trump was elected and I have all these friends who are white liberal friends, I mean, I've some friends that are conservatives as well, but they were... I mean, they, uh, they were traumatized. I'm not trying to downplay it all. They were literally psychologically traumatized. Um, and I remember saying to a couple of them, you know, Donald Trump's election didn't surprise any black person. <laughs> disappoint? Yes. Yeah, but surprise? surprise? Yeah. I mean, America has been disappointing black people from birth. So, like, by the time you get to my age... <sighs> You know, 
there's times when you can't do it. And this is why it's so important that especially our, our white allies, and you know, here's the show about allyship, that our white allies have these tools to say, you know what, can I take this one? <laughs> I got this, you know? Let me get, let me, let me take this one if that's okay. Right. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you exactly. very much. <laughs> well, you know, I heard you in an interview and this, this goes to what you're talking about, about that exhaustion. You said, quote, this book wrecked me. Mm, yes. Can you expand on that? I didn't want to write it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to bring that up too. I'm glad yeah, you brought that up. Um, my editor, uh, contacted me and saw, th- asked if I would write this book. And at, at first, and for some period of time, I said, no. Um, uh, and not, I mean, a couple reasons. I felt like there have been so many people out there, like warriors, like Isabel Wilkerson and Ibram Kendi, who just keep saddling up and riding mm-hmm. into this fight. Amazing. Um and I was like, well, what else do I have to say about this? Right. And then also I'm like, I'm so tired. Um, and I just want you to note that even in my light skin, it, I, I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired of fighting for my place and fighting every inch of the way. Um, and then I saw all the conversations I saw both sides. I saw people of color who didn't want to be other people's Google, right? They didn't want to explain to you the history of racism and chattel slavery and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they didn't want to talk about this anymore. Um, they don't want to take your calls when something racist happens. Yet another black person gets shot down and we have to watch it on video and we don't want to take your calls. <laughs> I mean, I don't want those texts asking me how I am. Um, And so I see that at the same time that I see well-intentioned and sincere white people who want to be allies and they keep mucking it up. And I said, you know what? This I know how to fix. This part of it, like I can get you through the conversation. Like this is my entire background. I can bring to bear all of my experience. I can bring to bear all of the science, all of my years as a journalist talking to people I don't particularly like or agree with. And I can tell you how to get through this. And I can tell you why it is so crucial that you do so. Um, but I got to tell you it, I, when I finished this book, I mean, there's some incidents in here. I, it's not even that I have never, I've only told them to my close friends. I told them to no one mm-hmm. ever. And here they are in a book. And I was thinking about this as I was writing and I'm like, not only is this going out into the world, but I'm going to have to do interviews about this. <laughs> like, I'm going to have to right. keep talking about this and I'm going to have to like relive this again and again and again. But then I thought to myself, like what kind of, what kind of reflection on my ancestors is it after they fought and fought and suffered for me to get offered a major book contract to write about this and be like, I'm too tired. (laughs) No, thank you. And I just, I put on my big girl pants and I, and I finished it, but it's, I don't know how Ibram Kendi does it, you know, and I've interviewed him. I don't know how Isabel Workerson does it or how Toni Morrison made it through. I mean, I don't know. I mean, and and we'll tell you, Lisa and I've talked about the exhaustion just doing the podcast 
having to keep your finger on the pulse, having to understand what's going on in the world. And when these heinous crimes take place and the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, like I could go on for days, Freddie Gray, just for days naming uh, Alvin Motley, Ryan Latoya James, Dante Wright, uh, yes. Donovan Lynch, uh, Patrick Warren, Vincent Belmonte. I mean, we could spend the entire rest of the interview. Just we really could, names. and still not have enough time. And still not have enough time. And so when I when I think about that, you know, as a person of color watching the news, watching these things, this repeated trauma. And it's like, I'm like, people don't get it. Like for me to witness this when I turn on the television or if I just hope, happen to open up Instagram or Facebook, the, the video is right there. Literally, I was watching a show the other day. I forget what show it was. And, and part of the show, they had a video of the actual footage of George Floyd, the incident. And I... I just, I was like, oh my God, really? Like, where's the sensitivity to people having, people who look like me having to witness these lynchings? Because that's what they are. And I I have not become desensitized to it. Like, it still stirs my soul and makes me ache and cry and cringe and... Sometimes I just want to pull the covers up and lay down because it's a lot. And uh, yeah. And as a journalist, I am so sensitive to how they have, will have those, not only will they replay them over and over those videos, but they will put them on autoplay. So it's like, you can't even avoid them. Um, you know, I think, I'm not, and not in any way, shape, or form. And it, that experience, trying to explain that experience to white allies, is was a big part of this book. Like I tried very hard to explain why your black friends and Latinx friends and and Asian American friends are like, I don't want to talk about this, right? But at the same time, you know, in my in the, all the trainings, I I run a nonprofit called Headway that's focused on bringing. Um, racial justice and equity to media, especially uh, public media. And so we do interventions and trainings. And I, I tell everybody that, you know, the, the cure for white guilt is action. <laughs> and the cure among people of color for desperation is hope. And I have found in my own work um, that, A, you have to be sensitive to what your, your own resources and whether you're able to do it or not. But I found that I actually see people move. <laughs> Sometimes it's just a tiny little nudge, like it's a couple millimeters, but you'll get a movement. And that restores me a little. <laughs> like when you see that it's possible f- for change, yeah. when you see that it's possible to be a, an agent of change, even in this minor way, it can restore your energy in it to a certain extent. And again, we're talking, I'm talking in generalities. That's not going to be true in every second to every person. Oh, I'm clear. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, it, 
in the same way that for a, a white person to relieve their own feelings of guilt by taking actual concrete action, um, it can be the same for a person of color that um, seeing that it's possible, <laughs> seeing that change could happen, can be res- it can be restorative. Yeah, you know, I wanted to to bring up when you had we're talking about you know you don't want to call your your friends of color and be like hey somebody do I'm so sorry or what's going how do you feel you had offered something I wrote it down and I can't find it but it was so brilliant so I can just I'll tell you off the top of my head rather than um, going to someone number one the one thing you don't want to say is are you okay uh, because most of the time we're not okay. Right. And that's, that's hard to say. We don't want to explain why we're not okay. So it's best to go in there and and assume they may not be okay. And instead of imposing my need to feel helpful on them, they don't need to meet any of my needs. I need to offer to help their needs. So instead I'd say, Hey, listen, um, I saw, I saw what happened. I'm so sorry. I'm sure that, you know, you must be going through a lot right now. You know, I'm here. Should you need it? Even if all you need me to do is order dinner for you tonight, whatever you need, please don't hesitate to reach out and I'm here for you, you know, take care. And then you step away and give them space You leave that open. You can even offer those specific things that they can ask you for because sometimes people are so caught up that they they don't realize, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take dinner or whatever it may be. Yeah, you can pick up that memo for me that I have due tomorrow. That, That would be okay. You can offer specific things, but then close it off to where they don't even feel the need to respond to you. And then, um, give them space. Some of the mistakes that we make when these things happen um, is we assume we know what the other person is going through, um, which is always a mistake. Like that's something I talk about in the very, very first book I wrote, um, We Need to Talk, is this assumption that we know how someone's feeling. And you don't. And you don't ever want someone to feel as though what they're feeling is not normal. Whatever it is they're feeling, it's normal. (laughs) <laughs> and it's okay. So don't make assumptions about how they're feeling. Um, don't even say, I- I'm sure you must be feeling upset. <laughs> you can say something like, I'm sure you're going through a lot. <laughs> That's okay. But don't make assumptions. The other one is to, again, impose your needs. Sometimes the the res- when we respond to an event like that, it's performative, meaning that we are performing um, care and concern. So I have rarely had someone who reached out to me and said, hey, are you okay? I just wanted to reach out and make sure you're okay. I've rarely had one of those people follow through with any kind of actual action that shows care. (laughs) I've never had them actually care for me. They've expressed care without caring. Wow. And I don't even think they got, I I don't think that they processed that in their minds to, to follow up with, action. Um, And I think, let me also say that those are are great tips. For me, something as simple as, you know, I'm checking in and God on heaven, uh, you know, all universal. I know how you must be feeling. You could never, ever know how I must be feeling. Or I can imagine, no, you can't. So, hey, I'm checking on you. 
hope you're okay. So, exactly. Something. No, no and I question. will say, no need to respond. <laughs> yeah. Just letting you know that I'm here. And whatever yeah. it is, do you need me to mow your lawn? Right. <laughs> whatever it is, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah. You take care of yourself. Yeah. And that's I can it. leave and dinner on the porch. Step, I can, exactly. you know, we don't even have away. to have any interaction. I just exactly. need to make I sure. Can walk your dog. I just yeah. want to make sure that you have what you need. Yeah. It's really important for people to share personal experiences. And in the book, you talk about a woman who really didn't understand uh, how prevalent racism was or how, you know, just the, the horrificness of it until she saw LeVar Burton talking about having the talk with his son about the police and what he has to do. And suddenly she's like, oh, my God, LeVar Burton, you know. So tell us more about why it's so important to include personal stories. Well, there's a, a couple of reasons why you want to keep it personal. Number one, it prevents you from making the mistake about talking about you people. Um, when you're talking about statistics and like people in general, you're generalizing. And that can lead to stereotypes period. So you always want to stay away from anything that's going to generalize people or um, sort of wipe away all of the edges of people's actual human experiences. But more importantly, we respond to personal stories. Um, that's how we as human beings are evolutionarily, biologically designed to, to respond. And so if you say, you know, statistically speaking, um, black people are less likely to use cocaine and heroin and yet more likely to put in jail for it, right? Yeah. That's fine. We know by watching people's brains, it's not very persuasive. It may be true, but it's not persuasive. But if you say, look, I have a friend <laughs> who got pulled over with a couple joints in his car and he spent three years in prison. Um, you know, and yet how, how am I to take that in as a person of color when my other friend who dealt pot in college and was winked at <laughs> that never, you know, stained his record. He's not a felon now. He can still vote, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't derail his life. So, help me understand this. If you think I'm not supposed to see that as, as racism, how do you, how are you asking me to interpret this? These personal stories, you know, I, I quote this guy who was interviewed by one of my colleagues at NPR and was saying, Oh, all the black people take all the jobs to which my question is, did you lose your job to a black person? <laughs> like <laughs> what, who are these black people? Like statistically speaking, what I would probably say to that person is, you know, statistically speaking, that's incorrect. That's not true. So I wonder why you bring that up. Did you lose your job? You know, the, the great anti-racist ag, uh, ag, uh, educator, Tim Wise, he tells this story in this way where he's like, you know, what do you think is happening for these farmers? Like the farmer gets up in the morning to go out and milk his cows and he gets out there and they're all milked. And some guy pops up and goes, it was me, Andre from Detroit. I did it. Right. <laughs> like what are you talking about? Right. Right. You need to get as specific and personal as possible. That's how you avoid all these broad generalizations. And it's also, frankly, the only way you have even a prayer of nudging somebody as by making them think again, Oh wait, what did I see? What did happen? Wow. Yeah. That is so powerful. Well, the time goes by way too quickly. I know, really quickly. I would like to devote and send out if you're on board, I'd love to have you back. Uh, I'd love to talk about the steps you've got. You've got 10 great steps. And step one is respect 
not affection. I like that. Step two, accept what you're told. Step three, take turns. Step four, be specific. Step five, uh, where, when, how. Step six, ditch the terminology. Step seven, find common ground. Step eight, ask good questions. Step nine, keep it personal. Step 10, don't rush it. The first step of, of what you need to do today is get speaking of race. Why everybody needs to talk about racism and how to do it. This book is incredible. You. you are, I'm just, I'm just blown away. I, I've just so enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything you wanted to add today? And then I really, we really hope you'll come back. You know, when we're talking about allyship, way right. too many people um, don't start at home. They think in terms of going to marches or protesting or donating. But if you are avoiding Thanksgiving dinner or holiday dinners because you have a racist Uncle Bob, um, right. I get it. I get the, how frustrating it can be to talk to that person, but the person who's most likely to change the mind of racist Uncle Bob is somebody who looks like him, has a similar background, and that he cares about, and that's you. So if all you can stand is five minutes before you say, that's enough, let's change the subject, please put the five minutes in. Because while you're avoiding that conversation, you're sending Bob out into the world to inflict his really hateful and damaging views on people of color and women in the world. So put yourself in between Bob and the rest of the world at least five minutes at a time. And if that's all you've got in you, bless you, but take the five minutes. Celeste, how do we find you on social media? I want to follow you and retweet everything. I'm yeah, so I, I mean, it's always Celeste Headley, wherever you find me. I, I quit Facebook quite some time ago, but I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, I'm sometimes on Instagram, although okay. it's, it's, it's largely dog content. Yeah, um, so same, with that. same with us. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a website, CelesteHeadley.com, where... Um, where you can, I have a keep a schedule there. And, you know, you can always check out headwaytraining.org. That's the nonprofit. Yeah. Um, uh, that's the nonprofit that I, 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 I helm and really doing great work, especially in media, which where it's so important that we bring about anti-racist reform. Oh, that's why I think having you back to talk about both, both to get into the steps and then to talk about that incredible work you're doing with that would be amazing. If you want to find me, you can find me at Lisa Davis MPH. If you want to see cute videos of Blue, uh, first being afraid of our Roomba, which I've wanted for years because the dog hair is insane. And then literally like he's lying on the carpet and it bumps him. He just looks and then goes back to chewing his toy. You know, it's like, it's adorable. My little pit bull Blue and Sunny. You know, every week I say the same. Uh, it's Sunny Days, my personal page where I'm cooking and dealing with my my boys, my standard poodles. Um, but if you want the juice, activeallyship.podcast on Instagram is where we are. Wonderful. Everybody, thank you so much. Rate, review, subscribe, keep coming back and speak up. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also, follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.